Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is February 29th, 2024, Leap Day, and it is my pleasure to have with me today Dr. Asal Rad. Um, Dr. Rad, and if it's okay, I'm going to call you Asal for the rest of the call. Yes. Um, Asal is a scholar of Middle East history. She works on research and writing related to U.S. foreign policy issues, the Middle East and contemporary Iran. You can read her work in Newsweek, The National Interest, The Independent, Foreign Policy and more. And she has appeared as a commentator on BBC World, Al Jazeera, CNN, NPR and more. Um, Asal completed a history in a PhD in history from the University of California, Irvine in 2018, and has written an awesome book called The State of Resistance, Politics, Culture, and Identity in Modern Iran. And you can and very much should follow her on Twitter. That is at an A-S-S-A-L-R-A-D. So Asal, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And people will note that I will probably say your name in multiple ways as I try to navigate between the Arabic pronunciation and the Persian pronunciation. So I apologize for that in advance. I like both um, pronunciations. So it's hey, thank you. Um, so I'm so happy to have you with me today. Uh, for Let's just jump right in. A, a lot of folks who tune into the Occupy Thoughts podcast may not have known who you were before October 7th and may not know who you are, um, but many of them do. Um, and if they don't, they should. And and they might know who you are today because in large part, um, thanks to your very regular posts on the outlet formerly known as Twitter, um, X, uh, quote unquote, correcting headlines from mainstream media outlets. And uh, when I say correcting, what you do is you post headlines or key paragraphs and you point out in a very um, incisive way why the headline is uh, misleading or incomplete and what and effectively, you know, offer the equivalent of an, a wonderful op-ed in a single image of what's wrong with media coverage. So I want you to talk about what you're trying to accomplish with those corrections, um, both res with respect to what, what the media outlets are covering and not covering and how they are covering it. And I will include in the show notes links to a couple of articles um, about media coverage and whether there have been studies, but go ahead and, and explain to people what you're doing and why you're doing it. Sure. Well, the, there's really two reasons why I, I like to do the, the headline edits. One is to point out, and I do this repeatedly, obviously, um, which I'm happy to stop doing once they stop doing it, uh, but pointing out the sort of double standards or at the very least, the the kind of language that is used to frame not just, and we're talking about the the war on Gaza right now, um, and you can talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict more broadly, because I cover the Middle East more broadly in other situations, like I'll cover things about Iran as well. Um, but in this case, it's this sort of overwhelming bias in the way that Western media covers what is happening in Gaza, the the history of the conflict in and of itself, and then what we're seeing play out right now. So one is just to point that out in and of itself. Like, what is the problem with the way that the media presents it? Um, what is what is an alternative way of saying it? Because sometimes people think, well, they're just, you know, they're just saying it that way. I'm like, no, it's ex extremely intentional. Um, that's why I sometimes point out the differences. And that's why I try to correct it to be like, there's a, there's a very easy way to do this. It, it won't, wouldn't require, you could still write a headline that actually centers 
what the you know important point of the story is. And the second part is to correct it so people can actually see what that correct part is, right? Like, what is the correction? Why, why do they say Gazans rather than Palestinians? Why do they try to separate Gaza as if it's not part of Palestine? It's not uh, Palestinians are, are not their own identity. Um, all of these things are really important. Why is the word killed used for Israeli civilians, but Palestinian civilians die? Um, why isn't, why do you often see headlines that say airstrikes or strikes without using the word Israeli to point out who is the attacker? All of these things are done intentionally because it shapes the way that people think about it. And one example I like to use to understand why this is so important for like a general public is there was a um, poll by Brookings Institute in 2021. And basically the, the takeaway from it, one of the major takeaways was more Americans believe that Iran has nuclear weapons than Israel has nuclear weapons. Now, the fact, these are facts, is that Iran does not have nuclear weapons and Israel does have nuclear weapons. So how do you explain a public that has the facts switched. Now we can blame the public. We can say things like, well, they're ignorant to the facts, but that's not really fair because not everybody is supposed to be an expert in everything. So why are the facts switched? They're switched because the way that people get information through their media and political discourse is being given to them in a way to intentionally create that outcome, to make one seem dangerous and one seem innocuous. And, and that is the kind of and that's the reason why this framing is so important. Why is that language used? Why is it intentional? Because we want to whitewash, by we, I mean in the Western world, we want to whitewash the crimes of Israel, in part because we are participating in them, supporting them actively, and we want to dehumanize Palestinians in order to justify those crimes against them. So I'm 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 smirking while you're talking about the Iran example, thinking back to some years ago, a, a distant family member who I was talking to when we were talking about the siege on Gaza and she argued that it was necessary to prevent the Palestinians from smuggling nuclear fuel into Gaza for the nuclear program. It was just one of these weird moments of, you know, just informational disconnect. Um, on the same topic, can you talk a little bit about, you talked about the use of words killed versus died and lack of agency. We have, you know, airstrikes, you know, leave so many people dead as opposed to who's doing the airstrikes. Can you talk about what we've seen with the passive voice since October 7th? Because I feel like um, like uh, almost violence has been done upon the English language um, in order to, to not attribute uh, blame in headlines of some major outlets. Yeah, I mean, the the sentences sometimes when you read these headlines, you have to do a double take to understand what it's saying. And that in and of itself should tell you how ridiculous the sentence structure is. It's like it's much easier to say Israel airstrikes kill, you know, X amount of Palestinians in Gaza. That's a very simple sentence. And somehow it's turned into things like airstrikes, Gazans say or no, strikes. I don't even know how to say it sometimes. It's like strikes Gazans say we're from Israel are kill pe people die from. You know, it's the the structure of the language is so odd and the words that are used. I've seen instead of using killed, uh, people are, you know, lifeless. The lifeless are being taken to be buried. I've never heard anyone who's been killed in a conflict be called lifeless. That is one of the oddest ways to describe it. And this is the New York Times describing dead bodies as lifeless. So it's um, 
the constant attempt is to not put blame on Israel for what is happening. In the story of Hind Rajab, um, it was just Palestinian girl found dead. Found so you want to give this context for what that story is? For people uh, Hind Rajab is a six-year-old Palestinian uh, child that was trapped in a car with her family who had been killed by Israeli tanks. They were trying to get out of, you know, they were trying to get to a safe place, though there are no safe places in Gaza, as clearly the story tells. Um, she, her cousin initially, her 15-year-old cousin calls uh, for help. You hear in the call that you hear firing and then the call cuts. So now her 15-year-old cousin has also been killed. Then there are calls made by Hind, who's six years old, to, to also asking for help um, to be rescued. There's an ambulance that is set out or rescue workers that are uh, sent to, to help her. There's no contact for days. And then we find out that the rescue workers have been killed. Hind is also killed. And this is the scene, right? This is a six-year-old child that was trapped for, we don't know how long um, before she was killed. And the story, the way that it was framed, if you were to read some of these headlines, you might think she died in a car accident. You might just think a body was found. You would have no idea that this was the result of Israeli state violence against a Palestinian family in a car trying to get to a safe place. Um, so this is continuously what happens, right? There was another headline in the New York Times that said, um, I think it was strikes on Rafah and then a large mosque flattened. And that was it. And that was the whole headline, you know, not even a sentence. Um, again, part of the problem with why, like why is, Palestinian rarely used in a headline. Um, when you say Rafa, if someone doesn't know where that is, the assumption cannot be that everybody is following everything extremely closely. But if you don't know where that is, how would you know it's in Gaza? How would you know it's the last refuge for Palestinians in Gaza if you just read that sentence as a headline? And then there are people who argue things like, well, you know, but you have to read the whole article. That's true. Sometimes the articles themselves are much better than the headlines because the headlines are not written by the journalists. The headlines are written by editors. Um, sometimes the articles are not very good either. But even when that's the case, a lot of people just see headlines, right? That's what they're, uh, un again, unfortunately, with um, the amount of information that people are bombarded with every day, the idea that they're going to sit and read a newspaper from front to back or read every story of everything that's going on in the world um, is putting a lot of pressure on people to be informed. So they're seeing they're seeing bits and pieces of information. That's why those bits and pieces of information are the way that they are. And also to that criticism, I would say, then why are the headlines so different when it's Ukraine, when it's Russia, when it's China, when it's Iran? So it's not about, well, this is just how we write headlines. It's this is how we write headlines when we're trying to whitewash the crimes of an allied state. And this is in the opposite way is how we write headlines when it's that of an adversarial state. Yeah, just to stick with this for a moment, I, I find myself thinking, um, I mean, I, I've heard from friends who are in journalism. So it, part of the challenge is everything they write gets gets challenged, right? They get challenged by groups like Camera and other Jewish American organizations and outlets will push them on every bit of wording. Um, can you talk a little bit about the case of the 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 early on in this war, the the controversy over who was responsible for the bombing of a hospital in Gaza. 
And my sense is that that controversy had a strong chilling effect on media's willingness to attribute responsibility to Israel for anything. Um, and this is this is a, a, a this is a case that remains contested. By the way, who was responsible? Um, can you talk about that a little bit? This this idea of contesting every detail as a chilling effect. I think that's a really good point, actually, the idea that something early on might have created that effect throughout. I mean, I would say that this has been consistently the way that Western media has depicted this conflict for decades. Like, this is not new to, to this particular situation. But the so what happens is when, first of all, a hospital is bombed uh, in Gaza and immediately the response from Israel is we didn't do it. This was a misfired rocket. Now, the the narrative is that, well, Israel would never attack a hospital. This is where we start in October. Israel would never attack a hospital. Israel has attacked hospitals before this. There's incidents of attacks on ambulances dating back to 2006, attacks on hospitals in 2014. This, this has happened before. So first, the idea that Israel would never attack a hospital is, is false to begin with because it's already happened. Since then, basically every hospital in Gaza has been attacked. Um, we've even had a story of Israeli forces in disguise going into a hospital to carry out extrajudicial assassinations. So the extent to which- That, that was in the West Bank, that one. That was, I'm sorry, you're right. That was, which is worse because that means that this is not just happening in Gaza where, uh, where the argument is that is where Hamas is the authority and therefore these attacks should be carried out. That happened in the West Bank. Thank you for correcting me. And- the entire healthcare system in Gaza has basically collapsed because every hospital, every area of healthcare has been attacked. Now, when the the media starts to run with this, who comes out and immediately takes Israel's side and says, "No, this wasn't this wasn't Israel." The president of the United States, U.S. U.S. officials, right? So you now have not only the state of Israel saying something, but you have the U.S. government backing that official narrative. Now, here's the problem with parroting whatever your officials say. The role of a free media in a free country is to challenge what the state says, or else you're just a state-run media, like any other authoritarian state. The entire point is to say, well, do we know that this is true? But often what you see in these stories as well is according to official reports, according to the White House, according to the Biden administration, according to uh, Israeli officials. And that's not the role of the journalist. The role of the journalist is to see what the truth is, not what they're saying. We know what they're saying. They're denying, uh, they're denying responsibility, they're denying accountability. Once that happens, the story immediately turns into it's whatever, you know, President Biden said this, it must be true. The same thing happened, by the way, with when when President Biden undermines the Gaza Health Ministry, the death toll numbers of the Gaza Health Ministry. As soon as Joe Biden says this, every major press starts referring to Gaza's health ministry as Hamas-run health ministry. We see this in other situations. Um, the idea of almost any attack that occurs in the Middle East against uh, U.S. assets and targets are Iran-backed. Everything is Iran-backed, even though it really... Um, how can I say it? it? It reduces the complexity of what those relationships are as if none of the actors within those states or these non-state actors have any agency of their own. So this happens over and over again. And again, what is the point of it? Because in the psyche of the average 
sort of person who's looking at these stories. They see Hamas run, they automatically think, well, that must be bad. They see Iran back, they automatically think, well, that must be bad. They see our officials said, they're like, well, that has to be true. And this is the way that everything gets framed and presented, whereas the role of the media is to challenge those perceptions and make sure that we're getting to the truth, what is really happening. So the role of our officials is important. And then the role of the media in simply parroting whatever it is that our officials say. Yeah, it almost feels at this point, I mean, throughout this war that the for most of the mainstream media, there's a reflexive, almost defensive. I mean, one I think there are people who believe that the role that the media actually is is deeply pro-Israel and that's what this is about. And that may be true for some outlets. I think for a lot of outlets, it's basically we don't want to be attacked for anything we say. So how many pieces can we put into this article, into this headline to make sure that no one accuses us of blaming Israel, of drawing conclusions, of believing Palestinian voices, um, of of not not correctly attributing evil where evil is attributed by the Israelis. I mean, it almost it almost feels like you have a, a, a set of rules before you can write any article. Like you said, if you mention the health ministry, it's the Hamas health ministry, what, whatever. Um, and then you end up with these headlines, which are almost illegible um, in terms of what actually happened. Um, I, I kind of want to stick with this, but I want to dig into a couple specifics, um, things that have been really big in, in the media cycle. Um, right now, very big in the media cycle is the controversy over the New York Times coverage of um, sexual and gender-based violence by Hamas and other Palestinians on October 7th. Um, and I'm going to include in the show notes links to um, some stories challenging or, or sort of taking apart the New York Times coverage um, and where we are today, where the New York Times is now investigating the people who are challenging the coverage um, internally. Um, can you can you talk about this as a case study for how the media is is dealing with um, incredibly, uh, how should we say, explosive allegations? Um, and allegations that have played a very specific role in how the world sees sees the ongoing Israeli um, offensive in Gaza. Well, first, there's how guilt is attributed, right? The when an accusation is made against is the hospital. We just talked about it, right? When an accusation is made against Israel, um, it's never it's never assumed to be true. It's always well, and this is what you'll hear in, in state briefings, right? What, what the official line of the Biden administration will repeatedly be is, well, we're, we're asking our Israeli counterparts those questions. We're, we're asking them for their investigations. And they get to investigate themselves, by the way. They investigate themselves. And then we listen to whatever those investigations from, Israeli, from Israel is, from Israeli officials. Um, on the flip side, any accusation against Palestinians is immediately true. That's just true because it was an accusation that was made. And you see this in the language that's used. Um, look at UNRWA, look at that case and how immediately funding is cut from what, according to Biden officials, is basically the, the essential arm of what gives aid to civilians in Gaza. And then other Western countries followed suit based solely on accusations against a not even a fraction would be a wrong way of saying it. You have thousands of employees at UNRWA, and then you have accusations against 12, immediately guilt. When there's accusations of sexual um, of sexual violence against Israeli women uh, by Hamas, immediately the assumption is guilt. Same accusations have been made against Israeli soldiers against Palestinian women. We don't even get to talk about that. I mean, the UN 
had a press release, um, I want to say within the last two weeks, where UN experts raised alarm at reports and cases of sexual violence being used against Palestinian women, accusations of rape, um, just ho horrible accusations, like women being held in cages. It's just horrible details, but we don't get to know any of those details if not for that one press release, because nobody will cover it. It's not covered. Now, sexual violence that is allegedly carried out, carried out by Hamas immediately is, is the story that is covered because it plays into the narrative of Israel that creates the sort of hysteria that then in their minds, I guess, justifies the mass slaughter of Palestinians, which is what we're seeing. Of course, nothing justifies that, right? Just like nothing justifies killing Israeli civilians, according to the US, nothing justifies killing Palestinian civilians. Nothing justifies killing civilians on any side. Now, what happened with the New York Times story, New York Times is supposed to be, you know, world famous, supposed to be the the paper of record um getting a byline in the new york times is should be quite difficult one of the co-authors of a uh, very important piece that was supposed to be an investigative piece about sexual violence against uh sexual violence used by hamas against israeli women uh, i believe it was published in december one of the authors uh, was not a journalist is not a journalist at all Right. She has no journalistic background. Not only does she have no journalistic background, one could argue she has a bit of a bias because she served in the IDF as part of an intelligence unit in the IDF. On top of that, there is evidence that she had on her social media, she had liked posts that were essentially genocidal in language. So you have someone, the New York Times has hired someone to author a piece, to co-author a piece, uh, that serves the Israeli narrative of justification for the slaughter in Gaza, who is not a journalist, has a clear bias, and has publicly liked social media posts that dehumanize Palestinians, call them animals, and call for their slaughter. And well, I just one of one of her co-authors is her um, young nephew by marriage, who is not a political journalist. And the other co-author is a veteran journalist, but not on Israel-Palestine, who in an interview after the article pushed back when asked if he'd actually found evidence, basically suggesting it wasn't the role of a journalist to find evidence, just completing that thought. No, I remember that that uh, that comment too. Yeah, the pushback on, well, we're just presenting stories, not evidence. There's no, the idea that you can run a story and say, our job is not to to submit any evidence. And then yet, when the story is about what Israel is doing to Palestinians, nothing can be said until there's an investigation. We don't know. Everything, <laughs> all of the language is uh, conditioned on a pending investigation. Yeah, I mean, I, I would also add for folks who haven't read the articles about the New York Times article, um, there's also real questions, I mean, if, if there were no questions about the substance of the story, then challenging the authors might seem like, you know, some sort of, you know, logical fallacy. Um, but there are huge questions about the story. Um, the, the family that is the hook for the opening and the title of the story and whose picture is in the beginning of the story have basically said they were manipulated and the family member of theirs wasn't raped. 
Um, there are huge problems with numerous people who are cited as giving evidence, at some cases having been debunked other places or have, have seriously challenged their own credibility with things they've said other places. Um, I guess on one piece, and you talked, we talked about this, or we touched upon this in, in the first couple of questions. Um, you mentioned the, so you've got all of this focus on the Israeli allegations. You've got this huge piece in the New York Times, which has never been corrected or in any way recognized by the New York Times as having any problems. Although I guess now they're doing some investigations into this one author of it, this one, this one non-journalist. Um, but the fact is, as of yesterday, the New York Times has not run a single story about the UN report about allegations, which they call credible, um, of sexual violence against Palestinians in IDF custody. And I'm wondering what you, if you could talk about what this says a little bit about who's allowed, who is permitted um, by mainstream media to narrate what is seen as truth. Who is who is permitted as a victim to be believed and who is not believed? Um, and you know, in this case, we we kept hearing from folks um, around the Israeli allegations. You know, believe women. You know, you don't ask for evidence, believe women. But we have Palestinian women here, and I I don't even see them being heard, let alone believed. Absolutely no. I mean, it the what you take from the situation is that Palestinians. It's not even that Palestinians, to your point, are to be believed or not believed. They don't even exist. I mean, that is actually part of Israel's narrative. Is that there is no, there was no Palestine. There are no Palestinians. These people except do not as exist. perpetrators. Except exactly. Except when something happens, then all of a sudden they exist only as terrorists, only as aggressors. Um, but they can never be victims. They literally can never be a victim of anything. And and if they are, they are blamed for their own victimhood. So as an example, just today, in a State Department briefing, a state spokesperson Matthew Miller was asked basically about you know the 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 context, what about, you know, this war has been ongoing. It started before October 7th. You had all of these like decades of um, of issues and, and injustices that Palestinians have faced. And his response was that nothing that happened be before October 7th can justify October 7th, but that Hamas's actions on October 7th justifies everything that happened thereafter. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he says. It's like, he doesn't say that it justifies what happened thereafter. He says everything that is happening is because of what Hamas did on October 7th. So nothing before October 7th can justify what happened on October 7th, but everything thereafter is justified because of it. It makes, it, it basically says Palestinians can't be victims and when they are, they're victims of themselves. Israel can never be an aggressor, can never be a perpetrator of a crime. I mean, it it is mind blowing the amount of you you're seeing videos, Israeli soldiers posting on social media their own crimes. That's the extent to which uh, impunity has gone. Is that they know that they can just post? Look, here I am looting. I'm I'm taking things. I'm taking belongings. <laughs> this is the most basic kind of war crime, right? You cannot loot um, from. The, the population that you're that you're supposedly not actually attacking, you're attacking Hamas, you're not attacking the civilian population of Palestinians, but you're going into their homes and you're taking their belongings. Um, you're, you know, stripping people uh, naked, blindfolding them, tying their hands and taking pictures of this and sharing it on social media. I mean, you have to understand in order for that to be uh, not a justifiable, but something that they feel that they can do means that there's absolutely no system of accountability. And that happens because there is none, because they're never 
the ones in the wrong. And it is always the Palestinians that are the perpetrators of any kind of crime, if and so they exist. And you see that in this case of sexual violence as well. Again, one side, um, again, Matthew Miller in another state briefing, when he's talking about uh, sexual alleged sexual violence by Hamas, it's, well, just look at the things that they've done. Of course, this is true, because you could just look at what they're doing. In the case of Israeli sexual violence against Palestinians, that's an investigation. We'll see what how, how that pans out. We'll see what happens. So Palestinians are not allowed to be victims, right? They're always the bad guy. And Israelis are never painted as aggressors, despite the fact that, again, these are just plain facts, despite the fact that one is a nuclear armed state with uh, an advanced military, the most powerful country in the world backing it, providing it with billions of dollars in military aid every year. And the other is a population that doesn't have a state. They do not even have a state. They have no, no military. The power disparity powers. does not show up at all. You know, if you're reading, reading media daily, you would understand Israel to be the plucky underdog. I think easily one might believe Israel to be the plucky underdog fighting the Goliath of, of Palestinian, of Hamas terror. Even though that would be easy to debunk if you just listen to what they're saying themselves. At the very beginning of this conflict, Israeli officials were saying we're going to, and which they did, cut off their food, water, and electricity. They have the power to do so, right? They have the power to do that because they already controlled the civilian infrastructure and what type of, and the major goods that could go in and out of Gaza. Gaza has been under a blockade for well over a decade. So there's no ability for Palestinians to do that. And yet, it's talked about as if we're dealing with two sides in a conflict rather than one side, which is an occupying oppressive power and people who do not have equal rights, do not have any rights and are occupied. Yeah, I'm going to circle back to some of that in a second. I want to talk briefly about what you're seeing of coverage of another very recent story, which is the... Um, uh, earlier this week, um, when U.S. and U.S. an active duty U.S. Air Force member named Aaron Bushnell engaged in what he described as "quote an extreme act of protest," um, setting himself on fire in front of the embassy here in Washington D.C., I want you to talk about how you're seeing the coverage of this and how the narrative around this act is being contested um, via headlines in in mainstream media and on social media. So that's a, a, a tragic case in, in the fact that Aaron Bushnell felt that this was this extreme, the most extreme form of protest, self-immolation, uh, was the step that he should take in order to bring attention to what is happening, uh, what is happening in Gaza. And it's this is a active duty U.S. service member who took his died in an act of protest. And I still haven't heard anything from the president of the United States. I still haven't heard him say Aaron's name, despite him being an active member of the US Air Force. Um, the initial immediate response and the continued uh, immediate response was to do exactly, so let me go back. Aaron Bushnell, who is an advocate of Palestinian rights is treated just like Palestinians. Even advocates of Palestinian of Palestinians are not humanized. Even they have to be 
somehow turned into pathologized, right? So the, the narrative that we hear about Aaron is that, well, he was, there was probably obviously something mentally ill. This is about suicide. That's what this story is about. That is not what the story is about. The story is about what he said it was about. Again, the agency is always taken away from the people who do not fit the narrative of the state. Aaron said clearly what he was doing, said clearly why he was doing it, made sure to live stream the video and make it available so that people would see it. And he even uh, put in his will that he wanted his money, whatever money he had, to go to help Palestinians. This is a clear, planned, uh, executed process where the person who was doing it very calmly explained why he was doing it. And yet none of the headlines in major Western papers actually stated the reason for why he did it. It was just a man, or maybe it said active duty US air member, um, set himself on fire in front of Israeli embassy. And that's it. And again, if you didn't know, if you weren't paying attention, if this was not if this is not the conflict you're following every day, you wouldn't necessarily know why. They also didn't use words like protest, Gaza, genocide, all the words that he used. And the, the central part of what he did is not only about, because he didn't do this act of protest just to bring attention to what Israel is doing in Gaza. He did it because of US complicity in what Israel is doing, right? His actual words were, were I will no longer be complicit in genocide. And as someone in his military uniform, as a U active duty U.S. service member to take this extreme form of protest and state clearly that it's his own country's complicity that he's protesting, for that to be lost within the messaging is such a dishonor to his memory and what he did, but also just plays perfectly into exactly how we've seen these narratives throughout these months and years before. Again, when Palestinians are not humanized, when Palestinians have no agency, neither do their advocates. And Aaron that's is- That's a power, that's a, well, you said that's very powerful, this idea, trying to sort of summarize how he has been treated. It's very much as he, if he were Palestinian. I, I think that's a really brilliant insight. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on the fact that this isn't the first person who's, who's committed an act of self-immolation since the start of this war. Most people don't know about the other one. Do you want to muse on right. that? For I mean, that's an that's such an important point because how, how is it that most people don't know? Most people, we I still don't know this individual's name. How is that possible? Because there was no coverage of it. And the only reason we know Aaron's name, the only reason we know his story is because he made sure that we would. But it is not the job, right? Someone else who, I believe it was in December in Atlanta, who self-immolated in front of the uh, uh, Israeli consulate, it is not their job to cover that story. That's the job of the journalist. But it's almost as if they don't want to share the story because anything that brings attention negatively to Israel will continue to create pressure, domestic pressure in the U.S. on the Biden administration to act. Right. We're already seeing that if you look at the uncommitted campaign in Michigan. Right. We're already seeing political pressure on the Biden administration. You have in January polls that show um, President Biden's approval rating is the lowest of any president in 15 years. This goes back to the second term of George W. Bush in the wake of the Iraq war disaster. Um, you have, you know, polling in the US that shows bipartisan support for a ceasefire overwhelmingly amongst his own party, Democrats. 
And yet this administration continues to, in their own words, unconditionally support Israel. Two times have bypassed Congress to send Israel arms during, as they are being used for war crimes, has vetoed three times UN resolutions for ceasefires and continues to give Israel basically a blank check to do anything that it wants. And so if the media were to constantly bring attention to what Israel is doing, it would also have to bring attention to US complicity in that. Not only does that have legal implications, let's keep that in mind, right? There's also legal implications to what's going on. Because remember, Israel is currently on trial for genocide in the world's highest court. The ICJ found that Israel's actions are plausibly genocidal and therefore did not dismiss the case as Israel wanted and saw that South Africa's case against Israel for genocide is plausible. So there's legal implications and there's political implications within the country itself during an election year. So this constant sort of avoiding or whitewashing of the crimes that Israel are committing is directly aiding our complicity in those crimes. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great insight. I, I will also add, I, I go through congressional stuff every day. That's my little obsession. And uh, to, as of, I think yesterday, we had uh, Senator Cotton, I want to say, is uh, sent a letter to the Secretary of Defense asking basically how Aaron Bushnell was allowed to serve given his quote unquote anti-American extreme views. Um, and I'm, I'm certainly seeing more of this on social media, this um, after death effort to delegitimize and dehumanize him in much the same way we see with, with Palestinians who speak up. Um, I oh, want so to actually- Sorry, because you said it, I wanted to mention that there one of the Washington Post came out with a story where the headline was um, basically it was about Aaron Bushnell. I can't remember if they named him, but it refer it talked about uh, his growing up in a religious compound and an anarchist past. This is again, this is how the story is framed. Now, if you were to actually read the article, for some reason, they talk a lot about this religious group that he was a part of when he was younger. I don't know how what relevance that has, right? It has no relevance. And yet that's the focus is not even on Aaron himself, but that religious group. And then this idea that he has an anarchist past. I found that so interesting because I thought to myself, militaries are the pillar of a state. They're the most important sort of uh, state institution that supports its existence. And this was someone who was a member of the military, and now he's being painted as an anti-American anarchist. And our and, military and, is and, and self-immolation is being treated as an act of terrorism almost. I mean, that, let's be very clear. The the that's essentially what's being suggested by the letter from the senator. And when you start bringing up anarchy and anarchist, um, that's sort of what you're suggesting. His act, whatever his act was, is is akin to a form of domestic terrorism. Whereas he hurt no one but himself. Yes. No um, one was hurt but himself. And so that is an act of terrorism and uh, students that are protesting on college campuses where they're supposed to have free speech are getting suspended or expelled from their schools because they're simply using their freedom of expression. Um, all the while we are arming and funding what is plausibly a genocide. I mean, the the amount where, you know, legality and language and all these things are used backwards in this situation, if it wasn't uh, I mean, it's frightening because it's so extreme. And what's one of the, I think, aspects of this situation that I think is often lost on the American public, at least, is that we should care deeply about what is happening in Gaza because we're human beings, because these are human beings, children that are being slaughtered. That It should not require anything after that, right? 
more than 10,000 children, 13, 14,000 children having been killed in four and a half months, that should move you to say something is wrong. We should stop this. But let's say that doesn't, that's not enough, right? Okay, well, we're actually responsible for it because it's our money that's funding it. It's our weapons that are doing it. So that's one level of actual responsibility that we have. On top of all of that, the way that this conflict is being treated in the U.S. should frighten Americans because what is happening to free speech? What is happening to truth? The way that the media is talking about it, the way that politicians are talking about it, and the fact that if you question or challenge that, suddenly you become a villain, you become a terrorist sympathizer, you become anti-Semitic, you become mentally ill. Anything that says that's the level to which Palestinians have be been dehumanized. Just think about that. How deeply is one group of people dehumanized that even the attempt to humanize them is called terrorism or mental illness? Because you cannot be a normal, healthy, uh, you know, not in distress human being and just think I'm seeing something and it's wrong. If you think that, obviously you're in a state of distress. Something is going on with you, not the situation. So it's to evade blame in a way that I have to say I've never seen, at least. I've never seen this in, in my lifetime in any conflict. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it it actually, it feels like an expansion of what we've seen for years from Israel. I mean, I testified at the UN Security Council in 20, uh, 2017, 2016 about settlements along with a colleague from an Israeli NGO and a European expert. And the Israeli ambassador to the UN said we'd committed an act of diplomatic terror by testifying about settlements. Um, it, it does feel like a, you know, we're sort of importing that, that approach. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about Michigan and, you know, you're talking, what you said about, you know, you don't have to be, you just being human should make you care about this. Looking at the returns from the primary in Michigan, I would argue that that is actually what's happening. You know, a hundred thousand people voting uncommitted. I think there is a media spin right now that is seeking to pit, make this, you know, to pit Palestinian Muslim Americans against regular old Americans and the Palestinian Muslim Americans, because they're pro Hamas or whatever, are trying to undermine the Democratic president while good old Americans don't feel that way. But the returns from Michigan suggest that this is not just Palestinian Americans. It's not just Muslim Americans. It is a wide range of Americans. And we're seeing this sort of start to spill over. I saw something today about in Washington state, a major union is, has endorsed uncommitted um, not specifically over Gaza, but because you know this is part of a menu of things that there's great frustration with Biden about. Um, you know, can you talk about it? You've got this grassroots outrage at the Biden administration, which the Biden administration and its allies, or its I should say its advocates, seem to the only thing they seem to know how to use in responding is contempt. Um, and for anyone who was watching CNN and watching returns of the Michigan um, primaries on CNN, you had Nina Turner on there as a color commentator. Um, and you basically had the entire panel attacking, interrupting and talking over a woman of color with great political expertise because she dared to talk about what was happening in Gaza. And after that show aired, we had Representative Moskowitz of Florida basically tweeting, quote, Nina Turner is an open anti-Semite. She, she should be nowhere on TV spreading her hateful rhetoric, um, whereas the rhetoric she actually used was not at all hateful. It was raising these issues. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit more about how the Biden administration or how the sort of mainstream Democratic leadership and this comes out in the media, how it is contending with what is actually 
you know, the complexity of a grassroots, which is not simply Palestinians and not simply Arab Americans or, or Muslim Americans, that it's more complex than that, and how they're reducing that complexity once again. Absolutely. The, you, this speaks to what I was saying earlier about we should be frightened. We should be frightened about what's happening. Because what the, the uncommitted campaign in Michigan showed was a group of people using their most fundamental right in a democracy. Your right to vote is, without that, there is no democracy, right? That's the most fundamental right in, in any kind of democratic country. And we champion the idea that in, in the Western world that we live in these liberal democracies. If you are telling people how they have to vote, how is that a democracy? If you are vilifying people for using the very right that they have within a democracy to push their elected officials to take up policy positions that they want, I think that's called the will of the people. And yet that is being used as a way to tarnish. And to your point, it's not being used against everyone. It's selecting a particular group, right? So now you're taking a group of people, part of a specific religious or ethnic group, and you're saying, well, it's your fault that this is happening. So if Joe Biden loses the election in November and we get another Donald Trump, that's the fault of Arabs and Muslims. They're the ones who did it. What does that sound like to anyone? So you have a group of people who are saying the problem with Donald Trump is right-wing fascism. And yet they're using the toolkit of fascists to say, hey, you have to vote this way. And if you don't, we're going to scapegoat an ethnic group to do so. It sounds an awful lot like someone who would impl implement something like the Muslim ban, doesn't it? So it's, it's odd to me that this is the language that's being used. And in part, it is happening because of the Biden administration's refusal to take a different policy approach, to continue to unconditionally support Israel no matter what it does. And that even means genocide. So the idea that that campaign, first of all, one thing that I thought was so odd, so odd in the reaction to the campaign, right? There was a lot of people on the, obviously on the pro-Biden side who tried to undermine the entire thing and say, 100,000 uncommitted votes doesn't matter. You know, it's not gonna make any difference. It's not gonna make a dent into, in the election. It's a failure essentially is how they tried to paint it. Um, Biden won the state by 150,000 votes last time. Uh, Hillary Clinton lost the state in 2016 by 10, 11,000 votes. 100,000 votes is significant. Not to mention the fact that Michigan is a swing state. It was never guaranteed to Joe Biden. That's not how swing states work. A swing state is called a swing state. Why we pay so much attention to them is because they could always go either way. And so you know that this causes a risk to his ability to be reelected. And rather than having, say, the Democratic Party rethink either A, who the candidate should be, or B, what the strategy of this candidate should be, the voters are blamed for using their most foundational right in a democracy. Or, or, or see whether or not this president, if he wants to be supported, needs to maybe have a course correction on policy if he cares about the will of his people, which, I mean, that's that's C. Yeah, I mean, you, you, and you, I think you pointed out something that's really important to emphasize is it's not just... Arab Americans or Muslim Americans. First of all, one of the significant groups um, that uh, that is against Biden's current policy on Gaza are Jewish Americans. And that's so odd to me that that somehow gets erased from, from the discourse as if that doesn't exist. Um, 
Black Americans, is anyone who is looking at what's happening and is horrified by daily images of children being slaughtered, of children having their limbs amputated without anesthetic, of people starving, and this is last night, or last night for us, of people starving, running to an aid truck and being shot at by Israeli tanks. I mean, the, um, every day is a new crime. Every day is a new horrifying story. And for whatever reason, people who have a natural sympathy towards other human beings suffering are being painted as anti-American, anti-democratic, or terrorist sympathizers. It is genuinely frightening to me to see how, how extreme the discourse has become. And that starts from the top. That is the leadership that is allowing this to happen. So if there's divisions in this country, when there were divisions in this country when Donald Trump was president, liberal media and liberals had no problem blaming the president or why that division existed. When it exists now, it's the people themselves that are being blamed, not the leadership at the top. Yeah, it's a very, very powerful point. Um, all right, so now I wanna ask you about some things that have driven me nuts since October 7th. And some of this you actually touched on, but this is what I call the chasm of coverage that exists between social media, and that's especially TikTok and Instagram, which of course is where the kids today are getting their news, which means the kids are much better informed than everybody else right now. And also X Twitter, which is where people like you and I probably get a lot of our news, and then the mainstream media. Can you talk about this chasm of coverage? And you mentioned already the IDF soldiers. I will tell you, it is surreal. When I talk to friends of mine who are, say, over the age of 35, and I talk about what's happening, and I say, well, you know, these IDF soldiers are live streaming and posting videos of them committing war crimes and, you know, sexually humiliating women by going going through Palestinian women's underwear drawers and holding up their lingerie. It's like they're slut shaming, you know, married women. It, it's absolutely surreal. They're, they're live streaming gleefully, joyfully, wanton destruction and looting, um, making pretty clear that looting shouldn't be an issue because we're destroying all of this anyway. So either I take it or it gets destroyed. What's the problem? But it feels like I'm living on a different planet than people I know who are, and many of them, quite sympathetic to Palestinian suffering and all of whom consider themselves to be very well informed. Um, and that feels to me like that is, a, a again, this chasm that has opened up since October 7th between people who are getting their news um, through through the, the filter of mainstream media and those who are basically watching the videos and the reporting coming directly from the ground, largely on social media. So can you talk about that chasm and what its implications are for how Americans understand reality and, and how policy works? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back to the sort of earlier point that I was making what we were talking about in terms of the sort of like media diet that people have informs the way that they think. It shapes the way that they think, as anything else would, right? The, the information you get is how you can draw conclusions. And so unless you're an expert in the field, a scholar, someone who's like a journalist who covers it, unless you're doing this as your daily job, where are you getting the information? You're either getting the information through the news, through uh, news on television, or through social media. Those are the main avenues in which people are getting information. And there's a generational gap with these things, right? So sometimes when I do these uh, headlines, uh, people will comment and say, well, nobody really reads the New York Times anymore, or nobody watches CNN, or nobody watches. And I'm like, well, that's actually not true. I understand what they mean. There are certain groups that really don't. And those are younger generations. They don't really read the New York Times. They don't watch CNN. That's true. 
but there are still millions of people who do when they're older. They tend to be in older generations. Um, and that's where you see this, this gap in information. Why aren't they seeing the videos that we're seeing on social media? Because mainstream media is not showing any of it. And imagine, this is a thought experiment. Imagine for a minute, if there were videos on TikTok and Instagram, just video after video of Russian soldiers um, taking women's lingerie, Ukrainian women's lingerie, parading it around, putting it on their military vehicles, driving it around, um, playing with the toys of children that have been killed, posting these images online. Would that be covered? Would CNN show it? Of course it would. Because we've anything that Russian soldiers have done, we tried, we, you see it in mainstream media. So first, there's there's that part of it. The gap is because, again, everything that we've been talking about, that's why the gap exists. But it also creates this very odd sort of bubble where, to your point, there are people who have been seeing these images and they cannot understand why other people don't agree or don't see what they're talking about because they don't understand that those people are actually not seeing these images at all. If you are on social media, if you're on TikTok, if you're on Instagram, if you're on Twitter, you're seeing these images every day, right? It They are there. But if and, you're- And just to be clear, we're not, we're not talking about a, like two different streams of analysis. We're talking about information, right? Yeah, so it's a question, do these videos exist or don't they? And if you ask millions of people who only watch mainstream media or read mainstream press, they will say, you must be lying. It's not possible that in the early days of this war, there was actually a craze in Israel of people putting on makeup and rags and put, putting on brown face and pretending to be Palestinians and making fun of them for being poor and starving. That could never have happened. It must be anti-Semitic to suggest that there are hundreds of those videos out there made by Israelis and posted by Israelis because it doesn't get covered anywhere. So this is actually a, a fact gap yeah, well, because it doesn't require analysis. What, what, how can you, how can you analyze in a different way uh, Israeli soldiers smoking a hookah and, <laughs> excuse me, and laughing while people are tied up and blindfolded in the room? What are you going to analyze? There's nothing to be analyzed. So it's just information. And those videos are completely missing from the mainstream media. Sorry. Sorry, I'll let you take a drink. Um, and if you have anything else you want to add on that, and then we'll move to the last giant question that I want to ask you. It does, I, I will say I've had absolutely the most bizarre conversations with friends and colleagues where I've had to actually stop in the middle of dinner and produce evidence. Because when I say this is happening, there's video, and they say, Lara, you must be mistaken. That isn't happening. That can't be happening. And I'm literally forced to produce evidence in the form of the actual video. And then I, I, you know, one dear friend of mine looking at videos that were circulating on an Israeli telegram channel with Israeli soldiers not wearing you know, anything over their face, speaking Hebrew to the camera. She says, well, how do you know this isn't fake? I'm like, be because he's identifying himself. His troop numbers, I mean, it is, there's, there's, they're not, there's no evidence. There's no, there's no effort here to hide what's happening. There seems yeah. to be an effort to deny it. 
that it's actually happening, that, that these exist, but there's no effort by the people doing them to deny it, which speaks to what you said, which is the impunity. There's, there's no worry that there's any cost to doing so. Well, there's no effort uh, to, to hide it in Israel, right? That's the thing to, to keep in mind. I mean, it's, it's the maybe, and it's not that there's an effort to hide it outside, but there's, there's no effort, I think, even to deny it in, in Israel. Because if you look at Telegram, these Telegram groups that exist, the the social media posts, I mean, this is, and, and it speaks to a, another sort of concern that I think people should have is, is what is happening within Israeli society in the sense that as, I mean, this is, again, uh, the, the fact that this is the most right-wing government that Israel has ever had is a fact, right? That's just true. Um not everyone, Israel is not a monolith, just like any other country in the world. And so neither is the Israeli population. There are people in Israel who are frightened about what's happening because it is moving towards more and more extreme points of view. And that is a consequence of impunity. When there is no, why do we have, why do we believe in systems of checks and balances? Why do we think that's important fundamentally to uh, a democratic system? Because if something goes unchecked, it, it's usually a bad idea. And when there's no accountability, and there is none, you see this shift further and further and further to the right. And it's affecting Israeli society in the same way that you see um, these sort of right-wing movements in Europe, even in the US, because when there's nothing to, to, to balance it out, when there's nothing to stop it, when there's no accountability, it just continues moving to more extremes. But the idea that any of this could be denied is sort of ridiculous on its face. I mean, they're posting it themselves. This is not something, this is like a soldier's actual account posting it, as you said, gleefully, proudly. This isn't something like a leaked video that got out. And that's why there's, there's such a prevalence of them. There's so many of these videos. It's not a one-off that you're seeing. It's continuous and it's every day. So if people... Are denying it it can only be because they're not seeing it but it certainly exists and there's there's no way of denying it once it happens but another phenomenon that does sort of exist in this situation is disinformation right and for instance uh there was a image of supposedly aaron bushnell's uh, reddit where he makes a an anti-semitic comment um except that it's not real and it's not aaron bushnell and it is completely faked and it's been proven to be fake. And yet the people who posted it won't take it down. They won't take down their posts, right? And these are um, personalities on social media, like influencers on social media that have tried to take a pro-Israel point of view, like a, or an, a point of view that basically justifies Israel actions is the best way for me to say it, but they won't take it down. Even there's a community note on it that says, this is not real because why don't they take it down? What's the logic? Because they know how propaganda works. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. When you correct the record, it doesn't matter. All you do is throw something out, the image becomes viral, and that's what people believe. And so there's that element to it as well. So even in, in those cases where, on one hand, you have Israeli soldiers and uh, members of Israeli society that are freely sharing these racist or just criminal posts online, and that is somehow denied. And at the same time, you have disinformation, and that is taken as truth. So it's it's a very, all of it is designed to just maintain whatever narrative you want, right? If you, you don't want to look at the reality on the ground, then 
you look at the disinformation, that becomes fact. You look at the actual information that apparently you don't even see. And that's why the role of the media is so important. And I, this cannot be overemphasized. The role of the media is crucial to trying to wade through, right? How are you as the individual supposed to do all of this? You're not. That's the job of the journalist. But then you have journalists saying things like, evidence is not my job. Then what is? Yeah, I mean, I find myself thinking about the distinct, the different um, analysis a lot of us have had since very, very early on in this war. Um, and the, the, the again, this disconnect that has existed between those of us who are paying close attention to every word spoken by Israeli officials, Israeli military officials. You know, the videos are out there. If you wanna see the the video of, you know, the IDF officials saying we'll no water, no food, no electricity. If you wanna see the video of the president saying they, there are no innocent civilians. I mean, all the, all the stuff that came before the, IC, the ICJ and when it was presented before the International Court of Justice, I think for a lot of Americans, that was the first time they'd even heard these allegations. For those of us who are watching them in real time and watching them in in concert with seeing the videos on the ground, both from inside Israel of the total dehumanization of all Palestinians and on the ground of the soldiers making clear that they did not view Palestinians as human, that that you know, you've got soldiers posting videos saying our our job here is to destroy, deplace, and settle. I mean, that's been from very early on. But that that gulf of information, I think, led to led some of us from very early on to say, this is incipient genocide. This is incipient ethnic cleansing. Everybody needs to pay attention. That is the intent here. And then the other, the folks who are either ignoring those things or don't want to see it or just are unaware, who are saying, no, 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 don't exaggerate. That's not what's happening. Here's a press release from BB. This is what's happening. You know, arguably, those of us who are focused on the reality actually gave a much a much more accurate analysis of where things were and where they were going. Um, it, it, if you think about what that means in terms of human lives lost, not paying attention to what's actually what's actually happening because the media has facilitated us not knowing um, bears some responsibility, I should say, for for where things are today. Is, is Have I overstated that? No, no. I mean, I look when we look back to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there's a very strong argument now that the media bears responsibility for it because we know that the we invaded Iraq, the United States invaded Iraq under a false pretense. It was a completely fabricated lie, essentially. And the media didn't challenge or question it. They just parroted whatever, again, the state was saying. And we're seeing that happen now. You you know, if people had heated very, very early on in October, this is what people were saying, right? Anybody, as you said, who was following closely, um, and if they tried to use the word genocide, uh, it was called inflammatory language. It was immediately, you called anti-Semitic if you were to use that kind of strong language. And yet the idea was, well, we're just listening to what Israeli officials are saying. We're believing then, them. Believe people exactly. when they tell you what their intent is. And if they're people who not only have intent, but have the power to carry out that intent and are pursuing policies that appear to align with that intent, for the love of God, believe them. I mean, how it's it's don't don't believe anything. It's it's one of, like I said, this sort of episode in, in human history is going to be something, and I say this as a historian, I think when we look back, people just like we do in every other human atrocity, it's like, how did they let that happen? It's like, well, people tried to stop it. But there was constant 
deny denying from people who actually have the power to stop it. There's even denial of the fact that they have that power. That's the level to which they deny things. The Biden administration acts like, and again, stated by uh, officials of the Biden admin, Israel is a sovereign state. Essentially, it chooses what it wants to do. And then they will say the U.S. treats every country that way. We can't tell any country what to do. While we're as simultaneously we're bombing countries, telling them what to do, but telling the press and telling our own people, we can't tell anybody what to do. Well, of course you can. That's what international law is supposed to be. And and look, we put all sorts of conditionality on aid and military aid to every country in the world except for Israel. That's 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 very clear. Um, all right. I, before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question, which is not so much about the media, but about your analysis, um, which is excellent. So you wrote a an article last week. You published an article entitled International Institutions Keep Trying to Save Gaza. The U.S. Won't Let Them. That was preceded um, a couple months ago by an article, which is also excellent, entitled Biden's approach to Gaza has irrevocably tarnished U.S. credibility. And I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. I want to ask you for your thoughts on where is there an off ramp for, for Biden's policy? Um, is credibility something that is recoverable, assuming that that you believe the Biden administration had it before this? Is there political will for a course correction? I've heard, you know, from the the uncommitted movement, you know, some in the uncommitted movement are just simply Biden has to go. And some in the uncommitted movement are about trying to use this this power to get him to change policy. You know, what do you see as the prospects for for any of that going forward in the next few months? I don't think there's any way to to your point, if there was credibility, which I have a question, to redeem that credibility. Because they've the Biden admin has had every opportunity to stop this. Every opportunity, including multiple UN ceasefires. They have refused to. They have refused to stop it. That being said, any every single day is another day that Palestinians are facing atrocities. So every day is important for this to stop. Right. It's it's lives saved. And so I think that pressure should still be on them. It's not a foregone conclusion. Well, they're just going to do whatever they want. So I guess we have to let it go. It's no, you keep putting pressure on them because this has to stop. This has to end. It should have ended months ago. But that still, in my view, won't be redeeming credibility. You, you can't. You've already gutted these institutions. You've already ma made them meaningless. Um, and it's not just because of the reaction to to Israel's war on Gaza, it's when you juxtapose that reaction with the re, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? There's a very clear distinction in the way that the Biden admin has approached one and the way that it has approached another. And we can talk about European countries and all of that. By and large, they would fall into line with whatever the US did. If the US decided tomorrow that we're going to stop arms transfers to Israel, we're not going to veto UN resolutions. They're the only ones that are vetoing them, right? So if they stopped doing these things, everyone else would fall into line as well. But I think to an extent, what has already happened has brought us to an inflection point where we have to think about how these world systems, how these international institutions actually serve a purpose. Maybe they served a purpose when they were initially founded nearly a century ago, but they no longer do. And we know that as a fact because they can't stop this from happening. And so we need to, as an international community, rethink those institutions. I think 
there's no way of, of sort of going back, right? This is a, a watershed moment in that sense. But in terms of the domestic politics and whether or not Biden can redeem himself, again, I think to an extent that that's a foregone conclusion. I, I don't, it's not a matter of thanking him now if you finally stop this from happening. It's you've already cost thousands upon thousands of lives to be lost for no reason besides your, uh, you know, whatever political ideology you have that supersedes the lives of innocent people and children that have been lost. I don't think there's anything to be redeemed in that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I certainly haven't seen anything that suggests any sort of change, change in heart, um, change of heart. The, uh, the video that's circulating today of Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL, just heaping contempt on people for possibly voting against Biden. It's, um, it's something to be seen, something to behold. All right. On that not at all happy note, um, we're going to stop here. Uh, so this has been terrific. I, I hope I can have you back in the future um, to talk about these and other things. Um, so thank you for joining me today. Uh, for our audience, thanks for listening and watching. And don't forget to follow Asal on Twitter slash X at at ampersand Asal um, Rod, A-S-S-A-L-R-A-D. And finally, as always, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do that on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you don't miss any of our great content. And you can find the podcast, this podcast, and the video and the show notes on our website at www.fmep.org. So thank you, Asal. Thank you. And, Thank you. Uh, I'd be happy to be back anytime. Wonderful. And people really do need to follow you um, because every one of your tweets is basically a short essay in what they should be learning about what's going on. And that's wonderful because we all need to learn and don't have time always to click through. So there you go. Um, and with that, I'm going to end it here. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.